What's up? Thanks for checking out the Social Jello with Angelo podcast. Today I interviewed Daniele Bolelli, who is an author, historian, professor, and also a former guest of the Joe Rogan Experience podcast. Really cool guy, lots of cool stuff. I hope you enjoy the show. All right, so I'm here with uh, Daniele Bolelli. What's up, man? Good, man. Thanks for having me. No problem. This is a surreal experience for me. I've heard your podcast. It's really weird talking to someone that you've heard for hours, but you're meeting them for the first time. Of course. <laughs> you're not the first now, finally. Like I've had a few other guests on here that right. it was the same situation. It's always kind of strange. But <laughs> thank you very much for taking your time to come out and share okay. your story with us. I guess to open things up, Daniele, um, a lot of my listeners come from a Kaja Kembo background. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a Hawaiian martial art. Or, yep. so, martial art to start in Hawaii. Right. But um, I guess for those people that may not know of you, uh, how did you get into martial arts? Like, what's your journey like? What style did you study first? How, how did all that work out? Sure. I started training when I was 17. I was still living in Italy. Um, I, you know, 17 back then, it was like, might as well have been 300 years ago because it was pre-internet. It was so, you know, you get what you get off the yellow pages when they still existed. You have no idea what you're getting into half of the time. So the way the way I started out, I started primarily with Chinese martial arts initially. You know, I doubled for about four years or so, trying a few things here and there. Uh, eventually, I settled on a style by the time I was 21 called, uh, well, even that's funny because they call it Kung Fu San Su, which doesn't really mean much because it's like the same as Sancho, but it's not really Sancho. It's, uh, it's actually a Southern Chinese family style, uh, probably derivative from Choi Foot. That's my guess, okay. um, but kind of modified in US and it became its own thing. So I did that for a while. I had fun with that, but eventually I found myself gravitating more toward combat sports. So I started doing uh, Western boxing, wrestling, jujitsu, judo, that kind of stuff. Uh, MMA as a result of that. And uh, I mean, I've done, I'm really, I like martial arts period without a qualifier, I like everything. So I've trained in a bunch of things, even for decent amounts of time. You know, I did a bunch of Chinese internal style, Bagua, Xingyi, Tai Chi, that kind of thing. But the things that I've been doing the most for the past uh, while uh, has been primarily Judo and Jiu-Jitsu as of late. That has been more, even because I'm tired of getting punched in the head. So (laughs) Judo and Jiu-Jitsu seem like a good thing to avoid that. So kind of going back, you... um... Do you remember, you said you dabbled in that, I'm, and you started in Italy, right? Yeah, yeah. And that was that was 17 years ago? Is that that I can't... That no, I can't, that's when I was 17. When you were so 17. Was, so that was 30 years ago. 30 years ago. Okay. Yeah. So that, that's, in that timeline, looking at, at Italy 30 years ago, what kind of styles were you... You said you were dabbling in different Kung Fu styles. Would so you, the initial one were some kind of, you know, random crap that they called Shaolin. Who the hell okay. knows what it was? wasn't really that good or anything but it was just an introduction you know just to be like whoa martial arts this is interesting (laughs) and so the beginning was a little bit of that a little bit of modern wushu that i didn't really care for but it was nothing else so i tried 
And uh, that's why when I found Sun Tzu in US, I was like, oh, I like this. This is kind of fun. It had a more, based on what I've seen of Kajo Krembo, it's a little more similar to that than to the stuff I was training earlier. So okay. I had, um, I enjoyed it. I mean, I still, I, like I teach my daughter, I teach, you know, my girlfriends. So I still practice it. You know, I've done, I've done that one for a million years. The only thing I don't I don't like about that one is that like all the more traditional styles that are focused on self-defense, where they don't have a combat sport application to it, inevitably, I mean, the problem with, I think is the problem of all of martial arts is uh, there is no such thing as training for fighting by fighting because everything is an approximation of what a real fight is. Otherwise you kill each other every night and you can't. So you either go the self-defense style, which is, you know, you go every single target there is, but you have to do it semi-cooperatively to avoid destroying each other, or you take out all the more effective targets, but you train it in full sparring, full-on, like, combat sports. I find that both approaches are interesting. They both give you something that you need, but by themselves, I find something lacking in each one. And the problem with this more self-defense based one was that clearly you lack, uh, you lack the feedback of a resisting opponent. And so, you know, you have all the right targets, all the right stuff. The problem is, you know, have you ever done it under pressure? Have you ever done it with adrenaline? Have you ever done it with somebody who is not just a random drunk on the street? Have you ever applied it? So I liked it a lot, but I was also like, methodology, you also need something else methodology-wise. Otherwise, you are stuck in fantasy land and you get some of these guys who start thinking that they are amazing. And it's like, no, trust me, a high school wrestler who's going to shoot a double on you at 10,000 million miles an hour, you're going to be real surprised. And uh, so, you know, like anything, I like it with some limits. And so then that's when I look elsewhere to, uh, to deal with the things that I felt were lacking in the style. So you kind of went from, if, I, uh, if, I'm, in, if I'm hearing this correctly, you kind of went from like a, a soft style with mm-hmm. self-defense and you started moving into a hard style. And then for the people that might be listening to this that don't know what Kajur came with, um, thank you for checking out my podcast. Uh, <laughs> Kaju Kembo likes to mix both hard and soft styles, and we don't have any rigid rules as to what our instructors teach. So you might find an instructor who does gravitate towards soft, or you yep. might, but has some hard. At the end of the day, all the Kaju Kembo guys are pressure testing their stuff, or we hope mm-hmm. to say that. I can't generalize there. But um, going from like a softer style to a harder style, like boxing, for example. Mm-hmm. And then for you, you got into boxing. And then you mentioned jujitsu, right? Yep. yep. And um, what when you got into boxing and jujitsu, what was that like? Were you sparring before that, or was it just like was that your first time I sparring? Spar- I mean, I sparred, but I sparred in a more, I guess, without the proper instruction kind of thing. Just you put on the gloves and you go at it type of stuff. I mean, I even did like I think even before I did boxing, I did like. Uh, I'm not sure we'd had gear on kind of stuff, MMA match. And and that was a good wake-up call because I was like, whoa, there's a lot of stuff I thought that would work that really doesn't work. And there's some stuff that actually is much easier to apply under pressure. And so I was like, okay. And that's when I immediately did, okay, I need some wrestling, I need some boxing. And that changed my game a little bit already. So let's go back to that MMA 
that MMA experience for you. Mm-hmm. So you were sparring in your in your style that had a little bit of hard and sure. it kind of was a little more soft. And you were sparring. Was it was that under was that on your own or was that through the pretty school? much on my own? That was yeah. on your own. Okay, so you yeah. were kind of like asking your friends, "Hey, let's let's spar yeah. after class or let's spar at the park," that kind of thing. Exactly. exactly. Okay, so you did it on your own and you said, "Okay, I'm ready for an MMA match." <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was other people. <laughs> How did that so, you know, like I think this was like 2001 or something. So you know, most people were not training MMA. Most people, even jujitsu, you know, if somebody had a purple belt, they were god pretty much. You know, it was like many people were terrible back then. And so there was uh, kind of like you know, let's try and find out how it is under pressure. And it was very different game to even compared to jujitsu class because it's like you know it's the same thing that you notice when you're in competition people don't tap to the kind of stuff that they would tap on in training unless you really have it sunk it in a hundred percent there's the stuff that they're like oh kind of getting me tap is like nope that's not what happens under pressure and so it was uh, it was definitely like whoa that changes the game you know i was playing the little bit of grappling i had i was playing a lot of guard and i realized no guard sucks in mma i don't want to be on the bottom <laughs> if i can help it i rather get the takedown and be on top so that's where the wrestling came in um so that's where i started understanding a couple of things differently and i was like okay okay i need to change the game around and you know, i like judo a lot but that was really hard to adapt to mma because of the use of the you know relying so much on the gi wrestling was easier so i like judo i still practice it i enjoy it a lot but it's a, a little less of a straight path toward being applicable toward mma so whereas wrestling was one of the things that I was like, are you kidding me? You know, it's like within three months of wrestling, suddenly I could take people down at wheel in many MMA thing. And I was like, whoa, that's really easy. <laughs> that makes a huge, knowing how to shoot a good double makes a humongous difference. <laughs> I was like, okay, that changes the game. So kind of looking at that, you were, so at that point, by the time you did go into your MMA match, you did already do some boxing and yeah. some wrestling and some jujitsu. It wasn't like you went just from that soft style into the cage. Like you, oh, you no, no, no. First I did with next to no preparation. And oh. then, uh, then after the first uh, one or two, I switched and I went the other route and I decided to, okay, I should add the pieces to my game because this is uh, not working as ideally as I would like to. And how, now let's, let's jump into your, all this is happening and we, we always have like martial artists. I like to say we have two lives. We have the martial arts life and then we have our everyday mm-hmm. life. So right. you were in Italy. <laughs> I'm going to keep rewinding the story. You were in Italy. You did your Kung Fu. You came to America. Um, you jumped into the cage. How did you end up jumping into the cage? Was that something that got thrown at you or was that something so, that you signed up so for? No, the evolution was this, was, um, so I, when I came to US, that's when I started training Sun Tzu. I trained in that one for a while. And then in the process of doing that, I ran into a guy who had been training Sun Tzu, but later had gone to China and lived there for, actually to Taiwan and lived there for 11 years, trained Tai Chi, Bagua, Xingyi. And I was interested. So I went to meet him. I really liked the guy, Tim Cartmel. And Cartmel also was getting heavy into jujitsu. I mean, now he's like a jujitsu freak. He's like, I forget what he did, like super high level black belt, but like really good level. 
And, and so by training with him, he was in the process of making the shift from teaching primarily Chinese styles to primarily becoming a jiu-jitsu teacher. And so in the process of that, he was a school that was focused on Chinese style, but was integrating more and more grappling and more jiu-jitsu. And so he, I think, organized something for his students and a few other schools nearby. And so was kind of in that people who are familiar with combat sports, but not really specialists yet, and was part of that arc. So I got to try it in that format. And then after that is where I was like, you know what, this makes sense, but I really think I should add other pieces to the puzzle. And that's where I started going into the wrestling, boxing, jiu-jitsu direction more so. Okay. All right. And then, so you got into MMA, you started adding more to your game. You started adding more puzzles, like you said, wrestling. Mm -hmm. And you finally got, you kind of went towards the result that you wanted. And I'm kind of avoiding what that result is because I would like my listeners to read your book, (laughs) which I introduced off camera before we started talking here. So if you want to hear the results of those fights and like that stuff that was going on, um, I do encourage you to read the book. Um, which was not afraid on fear, mm-hmm. heartbreak, right, raising a baby girl and cage fighting. So looking at that though, and without, you know, without uh, giving away too much of the stories from your book, but still <laughs> letting people know what happened, yeah. your, your primary career, was it to become an MMA fighter? Was there even a path for that? Like, whoa, I can no. be a millionaire MMA fighter. Like, was that even a possibility? No, I mean, not really. I was, um, I start, like, it was funny. When I came to US, I sort of had to stay in school because, uh, you know, I could defer other stuff I didn't want to deal with in Italy as long as I was in school. So I kind of ended up getting a master's and starting to teach almost by chance. And uh, and then I realized, okay, I can teach. This is fun and this is, I uh, enjoy it. And so I ended up starting to teach uh, at college level. I started teaching in history. And and so that was the thing I was doing to make money. You know, I was, uh, and it's not exactly crazy money, but it was enough to pay the bills. So I was, uh, even in terms of training sometime, you know, I realized pretty early on, because at that time, you know, my wife was going to school still. She was, so she wasn't going to make money for quite a while. And um, so for me, it was like, I understand that there, I'm never going to be the guy who can train five, six days a week because half of the nights of the week, I have to teach classes. I have to take classes whenever I can get them. So it was one of the things where it's like, I'm, it actually gave me two things, this thing of being the guy who's always going to be, like I was thinking long-term, it's like I want to train for the rest of my life, but realistically I'm never going to be able to train more than three days a week. Top, you know. Which obviously is different from, you know, somebody who gets there at 18, they are not doing much and they train twice a day, six days a week. It's a completely different game. It's a different experience. So that was both in terms of my expectations. It's like, look, I'm in for the long haul. I'm not trying to become amazing tomorrow. But at the same time was also this idea of uh, I need to be sneaky because I cannot build a game that's, I cannot do the exact same thing everybody else does and expect to be as good when they train twice as hard. So if I am going to be sparring and training with people who train a lot more than I do, I need to know, of course, you need to know the basics, you need to know what everybody else does, but I also need to develop my own weird, quirky thing. 
So for example, I was huge into lag locks like in 2004, which is way before most of the jujitsu folks started getting, I mean, there were people who are doing them, of course, that's how I learned them, but it wasn't common at all. And the reason being, I was like, look, I'm never going to catch a guy who trains more than me and is better than me in an armbar or a choke where everybody's trying to catch them in an armbar or a choke 10 times a day. But if um, most of these guys are not that good at lag locks. So if I can shift the game to go to a place where they are not that good, suddenly his high level belt just went down to my level or even lower. So now I have an advantage. I did the same thing in striking. You know, I was never like the greatest technical boxer there was, but I would do weird stuff that would, uh, like I remember my boxing coach saying, um, you know, every time you throw a good punch, eh, I'm safe because, you know, it's a good punch, but I've seen people throw it faster and harder a million times. So, you know, it's a good punch, but I'm good with it. Every time you throw a really weird, ugly punch, you catch me every time because I don't see that angle. I don't recognize it. And so you come from these weird angles that I can't see and, and it works. It works for you. It's like ugly boxing, but it really works. And so I did that a lot. You know, I would spar with people. And I mean, I remember literally in boxing, landing shots because I fake a double leg on somebody. And it's not even legal. So it's like, what are you even worried about your leg? You know, you don't need to worry. Like if somebody fake, who cares? But it's like, just to get that reaction of like, oh shit, they drop their hands and suddenly you... So I played a lot of like, my whole idea was like, I need to make my game weird enough that that element of weirdness gives me an edge over people who are better than me, essentially. I mean, again, if they are better, they will be true eventually. But if we spar once, all I have to be better than that is that one time, you know? <laughs> and so having a game built around weirdness kind of served me well. And how do you feel, um, how did, so, so you were, if I like, you know, if I understand the story correctly, you were teaching at a mm -hmm. university yep. and then on the side, you mm -hmm. were MMA fighting for, mm -hmm. for fun, yep. essentially. Um, yep. And how... Did the people at work know what you were doing? Uh, maybe, who knows? I never, I mean, it was always one of the things where I never really thought that hard about, um, like it was obvious that I didn't fit in in an academic culture. I don't fit in anywhere anyway, because I'm too, I have too many, like, I don't know if it ever happens to you when, you know, you know, meet somebody on Facebook or something and you know them in real life, but you know them for one thing. And then you're like, oh, let's see what's up. And you look at their profile and all there is is about that one thing. And I'm like, oh, damn, I like that one thing, but I'm not that. I think like for me, it's like I'm into more than one thing. So I never neatly fit into those words that are very clearly defined from A to Z. So it's like academic world in particular I found it I mean many people in there are nice people but I'm like you know it's like uh, I would do things that to me are perfectly normal and they would look at me like an alien because it's like you know I remember one time there was uh, I was up for a job and I got you know the department chair at that place really didn't like me and I was like why doesn't she not like me what's the issue there and I'm like and I'm wandering there. And in the meantime, I have like my boxing gloves strapped to my neck as I'm in office hours listening to Eminem and looking at the renewal of my medical marijuana license. And I was like, <laughs> let's see at that mystery of why you don't fit in. It's like, what do you expect? You know? 
<laughs> and I think you're, you're touching on a, on a really interesting thing here about what people can handle as far as what they perceive you as. Um, mm-hmm. I have a background in psychology and what helped, one of the things that helped this podcast was when I narrowed down. Because when I started this podcast, it was supposed to be about everything. It was supposed to be about life, about life in Japan, psychology, martial arts, social psychology, including socioeconomic stuff. And I tried to go that route. And then people just kept asking me, I don't understand what your podcast is about. Yep. So like, I finally had to say, okay, all right, I guess I'm going to narrow it down to, it got more successful when I said, okay, I'm going to narrow it down to martial arts and hit yep. those topics in between. Absolutely. Um, and then we talk about the Facebook thing, same with my Facebook people. I had my students saying, Angelo, can you, can you post more videos of the martial arts stuff? Cause on my Facebook page, it was just me and my of life. Man, I wasn't trying to market anything. Yeah. Yeah. And one of my students that was like more social media inclined mm-hmm. was like, if you focus on one thing, more people are going to come. And he was right. I hate it. <laughs> I personally hate only me. posting martial arts all the time on that yep. Facebook page, which is why like I created another Facebook page that has more of my weirdness in it so yep. that I can be weird. And then it's weird. It's funny. Those people know me as the weird guy who writes jokes, right? Post memes. And now those people want nothing to do with the martial arts stuff. So <laughs> I, know, I know it's weird. It's uh, it really is how it is. It's like people like labels because they can clearly identify with something. There's a set of expectations and that's what they want. They don't really want you as a human being at 360. They want you for the one role that you play. And that, uh, so, I mean, it is what it is. You know, it's not ideal, but it's how the human mind works. So it's good to be aware of it and be able to, to deliver accordingly. You know, if you feel like playing that game, otherwise just don't. And you have less people who pay attention. That's all. <laughs> Yeah, it's great for living life. Uh, kind of difficult when you're marketing a part- podcast. <laughs> oh, yeah. Totally, totally. I mean, I do something like that. Like, for example, I host two podcasts. I host The Drunken Taoist and History on Fire. The Drunken Taoist is about everything and nothing. You know, it's about depends on the episode dramatically, can change completely. History on Fire is very clear what it is. It's about history. You know, every time I'll tackle a topic and I'll do a deep dive on that topic and tell it to you in kind of exciting fashion, like you're watching Game of Thrones kind of thing, but it's history. You know, it's very, and it's not even comparable how much more attention the clearly identifiable one gets compared to the, let's see what's up today kind of thing. And how do you balance all that then? So like, uh, you're all these people, right? You're, you're sure. Daniela Bellelli, the author, but Daniela Bellelli, the writer. I know you've written books, not just about martial arts, but also your your book about, uh, was it Choose Your Own Religion? I, mean, I just made up my own Yeah, title. Create Your Own Religion. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, yeah, I mean, exactly. I'm into many things. I'm not into one thing. So it's, um, I dig it. I like it that way. And, and so that's, but yeah, of course, people usually tend to tie you. I mean, it's the same thing, like think about actors, right? If an actor is really good at that one thing, they, they have a breakout performance as the funny guy or the drama guy or the one who's screaming. All they cast them is the same role forever after that. Maybe they can do other stuff. Maybe they are really good at other stuff. Nobody cares. It's like, we don't want to get to know you again as the other one. We want to get to know you. You know, you are the one who gets mad and scream all the time. And every time we have a role that's about getting mad and screaming, we'll cast you. And that's kind of how people tend to operate. Yeah, and I think um, 
I believe it's the, it was Maslow in psychology that touched a little bit on how people wear masks. Mm-hmm. And, they, and, you know, people have generalized this to more easier terms about the several hats that you wear. I think they talk about yeah. hats. And it's very similar as, as far as what people see you as. And once they see you as that one thing, then you as the individual now feel like you're wearing a mask, even though that is part of you. Now you feel like yeah. you have to put that on to stay yes, for that to, to feel less crappy about it. I see it as speaking different languages. You know, it's kind of like, you know, you speak the martial art language. Okay, we can speak the martial art language. I'm familiar in that. But maybe there's another language that I speak that you are not familiar with. I'm not going to necessarily throw it. At, I understand that we, if we're going to communicate, I'll have to communicate through that channel. And that's fine. If you happen to have more than one language, great. We can communicate on multiple at the same time. But if we don't, we don't. And then I'll just, um, you know, there are people that, of course, I'm not going to tell them about whatever particular topic they're into. I will, or rather that I'm into, I'll tell, I'll, I, I will be able to bond. I will be able to create a relationship, a line of communication if I'm able to speak through their language. And um, that's all right. You know, in an ideal world, it would be nice if people are open to more than one language, but you know, if you know how to speak more than one, great. You can touch base with people from different walks of life. And kind of from that note, you did, going back to your, to that transitional, or those several transitions in your life, you finished your MMA fight. When you were kind of transitioning away, not really away from MMA, but you were going to stop fighting. Right. Mm-hmm. I, I take it you're not fighting anymore. I made an assumption there. No, yeah, yeah, you're correct. <laughs> yeah. So what was that like? How was how did you come about making that decision? What yeah, wasn't really a decision. I think is what happened when uh, my daughter was born. It was, you know, the time and the energy I had was shrunk even further. So I had very little time to train. And then after that, shortly, like a year and a half into it, after my daughter was born, my wife died. So that meant, you know, pressure was on me 10 times more to take care of my daughter, to teach, to make a living, to figure out what to do. So, I mean, eventually, you know, I always trained, but by that point, I was training like twice a month or something, just just to remember that it exists kind of thing. And then by the time she was maybe, I think, five or six or something I was able to start going back okay now we are hitting twice a week that's good that's a decent start and now maybe I'll squeeze in an extra day that kind of thing but you know by that point you know my daughter was born when I was uh what was I 35 so you know you take five years mostly off around that time of course by the time you're back you do something you're not doing the same thing you know your whole attitude your whole approach to things is different by that point so so that's kind of you know it wasn't exactly a conscious decision was more like life events made it so that yeah I had to change my approach and did you since, since you were coming more from the very beginning saying, hey, I'm not trying to be a professional MMA fighter. Sure. This is just something I love to do. Mm-hmm. But um, life kind of made the decision for you where you weren't going to compete in MMA anymore. Yeah. How did that affect you as far as when you, when did you realize it? When did you realize, oh, you know what? Competition's done for me. I don't, it's not going to happen. 
I mean, it was one of the things where it's like, uh, you know, in your mind, you still fantasize of like, oh, maybe I'm going to do this. Maybe I'm going to do that. And then you realize it's like, dude, it has been seven years. It's <laughs> probably not going to happen. You know, it's like you are also, I think, you know, all the stress of that period really jacked me up. So physically, I was a lot more vulnerable than I was before. I would get injured more. I would take me longer. Partially is aging process, but partially was stress take longer to heal and stuff where it, it got to a point where it's like your day-to-day life has been way stressful. The last thing you need is to add experiences that are more stressful, you know, even if they can be good and they can be fun, uh, like intensity is really not what you need right now. You need the opposite. You need to mellow out. You need to be able to find a place where you can calm down, where you can, Uh, you know so rolling around for fun that's awesome it kind of does that but like when you put yourself under the pressure of heavy competition and all of that is like i don't really need that kind of intensity you know i did uh, what did i do i did a couple of submission grappling matches um and that was fun that was cool i enjoyed that um but that was that you know and at this point you if, I, if you don't mind me asking yeah. your age, would you mind? Yeah, sure. I'm 47 right now. 47, all right. Yeah. And then at this point, you're not looking at doing a grappling tournament or anything like uh, that. No, really. Okay. You're okay with where you're at. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. just like to train. You know? yeah. I like yeah. to train. I like to, if I can help somebody, teaching them something great. But that's pretty much it. Also, you know, what's weird is... Uh, my my girlfriend has been fighting professionally and she fights for one championship and it's um and my and that kind of changed my attitude about mma i find it, i find myself i enjoy it way less because um, um it's stressful it's really stressful like um like the last time uh, one wasn't uh, showing the match live i mean it was in asia you know she was fighting in singapore and i was in us so the only way to see it is like usually through the one app you see it when it's happening live and that one they were like they edit and then they were showing it a week later so they were not going to show it at the time and i realized it was so much better for me i was like how much rather take a sleeping pill pass out try to sleep a few hours and wake up to find out what happened rather than watch it live i like way too stressful not no good for me it's to- i think it's totally different I, I was never, I think it's totally different watching MMA when you and someone you love is not involved. Like if yeah. you just go, if you're watching yeah. two fighters that you don't know, yeah. Yeah. you're not too invested in, you haven't bet a bunch of money on it or anything like that. You're just watching it for fun. There's the entertaining factor, but it's a total different game when you're watching someone you love, or if you're coaching, cause I'll coach and I'll put a guy yeah. in there. I'm just like, like yeah. <laughs> screaming no, the whole time. <laughs> It's brutal. And, and the thing that's weird is that I find it, it affects also watching MMA where it's not somebody I know. Where now, you know, when I watch a fight, I mean, that fight is inevitable. It's part of the game. But like where you see a big KO where before I would be like, oh, I hope that guy is not dead. But hey, that was a great KO. Now the factor, ooh, that's really bad for that dude's brain kind of element tends to, has been rising a lot more in my consciousness compared to the, wow, that was a phenomenal KO. So it um, makes it a little harder to watch the same way I did. Yeah, I feel like it's work now. 
I, that's how I feel when I watch yeah. MMA as a coach, as someone who does all, like I, I do, it's not my main career. It's just people approach me and say they want sure. to coach them in Japan. So I feel it's my responsibility to do so. But now when I watch MMA, I'm always like taking, no, I'm trying to say, okay, everyone's going to have beers and watch MMA. And I'm, yeah. I'm sitting there taking notes or what, yeah. like, Oh, look how many leg kicks. He's got about 56. And I'm sitting there statistically looking at the fight. I'm like, Oh yeah. God, I'm working yeah. on a yeah. Saturday. <laughs> no, it is. I completely get it. So in that transitional period, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about. Cause I'm in that same boat. Um, I stopped. I was going to go back. COVID hit. I'm 39 this year. Right. And I'm realizing the same stuff. I'm like, Hey, and my, my, my guys are always asking me, can you go back in? And I'm like, I can, right. I just don't, since, since I never did this as a career, sure. I, I ended up doing a professional match out of, they told me it was an amateur, you got to love Japanese communication. They told me it was an amateur match. I thought it was going to be a smoker where you just walk in, there's going to be different gyms and we're at a theater. I'm like, yeah. what's going on? And then they're like, where's your theme music? I'm like, my theme music? And yeah. next thing you know, I'm in a pro fight. And I'm like, whoa, whoa. So like, luckily it was a, pro fight under amateur rules which i which at least they stuck to that so like okay. the amateur rules in japan are you're not allowed to ground and pound so yeah. you, you can ground and pound to the body but not the head yeah, yeah. and kind of like, type yeah kind of pancreas style but when you're standing up it's like kickboxing i'm like all yeah. right at least we're sticking to that set of rules yeah. but um after that all my whole my gym that i was doing some sub just for fun i was coaching at a gym at an mma gym and they were just like hey we have a pro fighter now as our coach. I'm like, whoa, guys, slow down. Yeah. <laughs> slow down here. I'm just an English teacher. You know, I do train yeah. six days a week because I'm lucky to do it. But um, it was never my goal. Yeah. I guess people see you training six days a week, so they assume that must be what you're going to do. <laughs> I just love doing it. And um, same transitional period, though. I also have a daughter who was, uh, that was, she's five now. So that was five years ago. She was born when they yeah. lived in that pro fight. So I kind of got sucked into it again i left it when i was 25 i did it at 25 i did smokers when i was 25 it came to japan yeah thought i put a told my wife i put it behind me she wasn't happy about that and right. <laughs> so like that transitional period that moment where you switch and say okay this is something i love but this isn't necessarily something that's gonna it might be something that's not going to help me at all it might actually hold me back from the other stuff i need to do so yeah, there's a point where it's like, why are you doing it? Is it still serving you? Is it helping you? Is it not? And, you know, different phases of life are different in that regard. And you were mentioning you, you also teach, you were teaching, you teach martial arts to yeah, your I daughter. For a while, yeah, like I taught from the time I was about 25, 20, something like that for like, for about seven years, I think 25 to 32 roughly. I taught uh, martial art classes and, uh, and, you know, I still enjoy just even, uh, you know, you go roll jujitsu and you grab somebody who is less experienced and you work with them and you help them out. And even as you roll, you know, they ask you things and then you can, and I'm like, that's fun. I enjoy that. And I think that also helps in that regard of being, uh, being used to teaching in general, not just martial arts that usually you have a sense of what it takes for somebody to learn. Because I give you an example, like my judo kind of sucks, you know, to be perfectly honest, my judo is far from, is amazing. I'm like, I'm okay, that's about it. 
but like I would train with somebody and uh, maybe I'll grab a new person and we're training together and and they're like man I learned more judo today than in the last six months and I'm like really because I suck so I don't know how but then I think about it I'm like oh because I actually break down the concepts in a way that actually are easier to digest and yeah I can see hell I wish somebody taught, taught me that way I would have I would have learned faster you know it would have been a lot easier so I think, you know, yeah, I'm way better in that regard that, um, you know, I think I'm, I'm okay. You know, I mean, inevitably, I've done martial arts for 30 years. So, of course, you're going to know something, you know, you're not going to totally suck after that long. Um, but I think, like, my ability to, exp- to explain it to somebody else, to break it down, to help them see where they are stuck and to help them learn things is way higher than purely my ability as an athlete. And those are two different things, right? I, yeah. I always want to say like teaching and competing, you might have someone who's really good at competing, kind of yep. sucks at teaching. Yep. And you might have someone who's really good at teaching, sucks at competing, yep. that's just not their thing. Those are different skill sets. Yeah. Some, yeah. Are, yeah. some can argue this. Some people can combine both. Some people can combine both, but to very different degrees, or they can be balanced, or they can be 100-0. You know, it's like, uh, um, definitely. Those are two different skill sets. And, uh, you know, there's no rule that say that you only need to have one skill set, but clearly just because you know how to do one thing well doesn't mean you know how to do the other. So you kind of you've you've moved into you still train, you want to keep doing it for the rest of your life. So obviously you're kind of you're still yeah. primarily focusing more on grappling now, judo yeah. and and jujitsu. Uh, judo jiu-jitsu and i teach the self-defense stuff the sun Tzu style uh, to my daughter and stuff so it's like i'm that's kind of what i do those three things primarily uh mm-hmm. well okay um primarily kind of like i just realized oh yesterday i was like uh working with a guy on like kali eskrima stuff and i'm like uh i want to learn that that's cool you know so it's like mostly that but then you know you never know there's just, there's just too much stuff. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's too much cool stuff out there. <laughs> you know, that's one thing that was weird yesterday as I was playing with the Kali Eskrima stuff. I was like, oh my God, I am so much more natural at this than I am at things like judo that it's not even funny. Like this stuff I can pick up really quickly. Most judo, no, I don't pick up quickly at all. So I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's uh, clearly a different part of the brain and the style fits my game a little better. And so it was interesting. Yeah, something I've been thinking about more, and I was talking to my other Kajukembo instructors in the community, I mean, I was telling them, is it really about style? Is it really about techniques? Because Kajukembo actually is not a style. It's more of a method. Right. And because of that, I'm always telling the guys, I'm like, is it really about style? Like we keep learning techniques and techniques mm-hmm. and more techniques. And some of the guys get into Eskrima and they get into FMA yeah. and some of the guys get into this and they all share. Mm-hmm. And after a while, I started realizing that like I go to different places that do something that I've never done before. And within a few minutes of being there, the instructors are already kind of ushering me away from the beginners and showing me other stuff. Cause they're like, Oh, you're picking it up right away. I've been really lucky that I'm a kinesthetic learner. So when I see something, I can apply it real quick, but I've always wondered like, is it really, like, I don't know, for me, it's not about the technique. It's about the principles. And like, once you have the basic principles, they can essentially be applied to anything. Yeah. Basic like mechanics. And it goes, it goes beyond just body mechanics, like in engineering and everything else. Like sure. being able to take something apart and put it back together again, kind of deal. 
definitely on a mental level for sure and on the purely body mechanics thing it's easier it's easier because you have you are used to i mean think about it like when you teach a beginner half of the time when you're like if you are facing them and you show something and you do something with the right they are like because they can't put together that the right is that other it's like so it's like let stuff that you know if you have trained you never even think about anymore or you know you watch it on a video you immediately pick up you know right hand is doing this left leg is doing that but for people who are not used to it it takes a while and uh and so that's something that it doesn't matter what it is you you see something else you already start with that understanding that's more more advanced already for sure because you have because you are used to similar things at least yeah and especially when it comes to students you have students come in you never know what the students coming in with like i've had some students, you show them something real quick, they get it, they move on. I've had some students stop me in the middle of an next technique. Is that a 90 degree angle? Yeah, and I'm yeah. thinking, oh boy, okay, yeah. um, let me do some math here. Yes, <laughs> yes, it's a 90 degree angle. <laughs> yeah, no, it's uh, totally, totally. Everybody learns different ways for sure. Well, we're getting towards the end of our of our show here. But um, I guess my, my final question to you is um, what's next? What are your what are your plans? What do you what do you want to do? I know you have your several podcasts and yeah. of course your personal life. What's 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 your plan? What what do you especially? I know it's a weird thing to ask in two thousand twenty one. This used to be an easy question, but <laughs> uh, no, but it makes sense. I mean, ultimately, I'm um, I keep doing the podcast. You know, the history one has become uh, you know whereas before it was more of a side project has become kind of my main job. Um, I still teach uh, in university. Ideally, when the world opens up again, I will teach in person maybe one day a week and then I'll do online the rest of the time. So those are going to be my two primary jobs, so to speak. But also the thing I want the most is I want to carve myself time to be able to write fiction. You know, I've wrote four, I've written four books that are nonfiction, but I really want to write fiction. So I want to have the time to, I started already. I'm having a blast. Uh, I just want to carve myself more time to do that. In the meantime, you know, train. I just, uh, I'm pretty excited. We just have uh, placed the, something I've wanted my whole life. I have a sauna now in my backyard so I can just go in and just lay out and sweat and uh, that's going to feel good. So, you know, but primarily those are the things. I want to kind of train for fun, uh, write, teach, do the podcast. That's sort of the goal. Awesome. Is there any um, words of wisdom you have to anyone who's older, who's doing martial arts? What, what, uh, what would you like to share I mean, with them? I think the goal is uh, the nature of the game in martial arts is that you are there's always a high likelihood to get injured. And there's a point where, you know, you're 18 and you heal up really fast and you don't care because whatever, that's fine. But eventually you start thinking about how much is this worth it? Am I doing the thing that may... So I think it's really important to train with an attitude that, you know, maybe as long as you are training semi-realistically, tone down the intensity a tiny bit, but allows you to go long-term to be able to train for the rest of your life rather than push, push, push with this very, I need to go harder and then you're wrecked and then you never train again. And it's like, that wasn't worth it. So I'm kind of a big fan of the idea of uh, training for longevity, train for long-term. Don't train because, uh, you know, your ego kicks in and you want to go 300%. And 
Maybe you can afford it when you're 20. Even then, it's not a great idea, but you can get away with it. But definitely not a good idea after or later. Is there anything you want to promote before you go? No, all good. So, I mean, people know how to use Google. So if they're interested in anything, they can find it and stuff. All right. So, so no, no, at, at Daniele Bellelli, at Instagram, at Twitter. At Twitter. <laughs> if people care, they can find it. It interests them. So that's, it's all good. All right. So you heard it. Google Daniele Bolelli. Um, spelling. Oh, dear. Lord. Okay. D-A-N-I-E-L-E. Yeah, B-O-L-L-E-L-I. I will let you know that I've misspelled it a thousand times and his name still comes up. So yeah, there are a lot of L's in there. So it's <laughs> complicated. All right, Daniele. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. And for my listeners, stay cool. tuned for the wrap up. And that's a wrap. Thanks for checking out Social Dolo with Angelo. This show is brought to you by viewers like you. So please subscribe and share with your friends. That's how this show works. And this is how it grows. As you can see, I'm not a giant YouTuber or, or big podcast person. I don't know if that's even a real word. <laughs> I do this because I love it, and it would be great if you like what you heard. Thank you very much for supporting the show. Share it with your friends. Catch you all next time. Peace. <laughs>